You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 127 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is Alan Bodiner. And Alan is a contributing editor at Tricycle Magazine and the editor of the new edition of Zig Zag Zen, Buddhism and Psychedelics. Alan holds a master's degree from the College of Buddhist Studies in LA and he serves on the board of the Rainforest Action Network. And as you might guess, uh, we are going to focus this episode on Buddhism. And the Buddha said, The mind is everything. What you think, you become. So thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. So could you tell the listeners a bit about uh, what you do? Well, I sleep, I get up, I have breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'm I'm a writer. I'm a writer and I'm an activist. Uh, So I write books and articles and then I also have been on the board of an organization called Rainforest Action Network for way too long. Um, <laughs> and uh, But they are one of the best organizations um, that I know of working to preserve the environment. And uh, uh, <clears throat> they are lean and mean and uh, a terrific group. They've attracted really fantastic young people for for the 25 years or so that I've been associated with that organization. So I'm very pleased and proud to be a part of their, their work. And, um, and I write about, um, aside from Buddhism, I write about political stuff sometimes. And, um, but, uh, Buddhism is primarily the topic that, motivates me to write, uh, mainly because when I write about Buddhism, I learn a lot about it. I'm amazed how at it, at Buddhism's core it's quite simple, but still it's an inf- infinite uh, topic. Well, it's very interesting to me, and I think it's um, uh, generally growing in uh, um, as a topic of interest to young people now uh, again, which is great. How and when did you discover Buddhism? Um, Well, I actually um, I I think it's fair to say that um, it was an accident. Um, I I think I was led astray by my desire to eat Indian food, um, which was the primary motivation for taking a vacation in India uh, a long time ago. And um, that and and the prospect of skiing in uh, northern India, in Gulmarg, uh, where they have um, uh, these... uh, they take you up the hill in a palaquin. <laughs> anyway, I I I love in, I've always loved Indian food, so I was attracted to go to India. And while I was in India, I became intoxicated by Indian culture, specifically Hindu religion, and um, I sort of became a young bhakti and uh, shaved my head and wore local garb and and uh, I mean this was a transition and I was there for about a year and um, did a lot of chanting and dancing and um, at that point I was getting ready to go back home and a friend that I had uh, made while I was there she said that I wasn't ready to go home I had to get my um, act together a little more because I'd be 
viewed when I got home as being sort of, you know, weird and uh, a little out of my mind. So <clears throat> she suggested that I go to a, um, to a meditation retreat in uh, Sri Lanka. And so I took her advice because I found her to be an incredibly wise person and uh, found my way to, uh, to a very old meditation center in the hills of Kandy, which is the main, well, second main city of Sri Lanka. Um, but this was not in the city. This was in the surrounding area, way up in the mountains. And um, it was a, uh, usually there are 10-day retreats. This was a 14-day retreat. Um, and I was so sorry that I had arrived there not long after, uh, not long after being there. It was a little dirty. It was boring. Um, the room that I was staying in was not even, well, to call it a room would be, um, over the top. It was just a little shack with I could barely stand up straight in. And the bed was as hard as rock. And the meals were stewed greens at seven in the morning. Uh, and then, um, the same stewed greens for lunch and no dinner. So, <clears throat> I was not having a very pleasant time. Plus, after all the sitting, um, my back and knees were killing me, and I was annoyed at just about everything. So I was not an en enthusiastic uh, student of Buddhism. Um, <clears throat> and then it was, I think, uh, well, I was plotting to leave, but it turned out that it was not so easy to get a taxi to come from candy to all the way up to this, uh, this retreat center. And, uh, so the, it had to be booked, uh, a week in advance or something. And then by that time I was almost ready to leave. So I just stuck it out and, um, stuck it out. And, um, and then I think it was the, the night of the day before, um, that something quite astonishing happened. All of my pain dropped away. All of my annoyances vanished. And I just fell into a, uh, a state of being that, that I, that I could only describe as ecstatic. I mean, I wasn't, uh, jumping around and yelling, but I just was amazed at everything I saw. And even the bugs, that were in my little cootie that had annoyed me for two weeks, um, I found to be exciting and amazing and just to contemplate their behavior and the fact that they were alive and that they and I shared this planet. And it was just an incredible feeling of kinship with everything. So... It was it was really a kind of a remarkable experience that uh, that I had never had any taste of before. Um, now I had avoided psychedelics uh, because I knew I was going to have children later in my life, and i i didn't I didn't think we knew enough about them to you know to feel comfortable taking them. And uh, although my roommates were not at all of that persuasion. They were taking acid um, almost every day, it seemed anyway. And um, I think at one time they said they were going to dose me, but I was very careful not to get dosed. Um, <clears throat> so I didn't have, I was pretty straight edge. I mean, I really didn't do anything. I didn't, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. Uh, nothing. And I was uh, just naturally crazy, so I fit in with my roommates quite well. But um, coming back from uh, from the retreat and arriving in New York was quite an experience. 
and uh, I still had that that glow about me um, that I was feeling. And uh, I met this um, I met this monk in uh, that the retreat director gave me a letter to give to a monk in Brooklyn. And in turn, I met with him, and we had a very nice time. And then he uh, gave me a letter to give to uh, to a monk in Los Angeles when I returned to California. So I did that, and then that seemed to be some kind of a way to snare me into uh, studying with this monk, which I did, and I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, so when I was back in Los Angeles, I, I was writing for the LA Weekly and studying Buddhism, and um, I came across uh, Terence McKenna, and uh, planned to write a story about him because he was quite fascinating. And he kept talking about mushrooms and, you know, in a way that did pique my curiosity. Um, so anyway, long, long story a bit shorter, I, I was persuaded to try psilocybin by Terrence McKenna and... And that was quite a remarkable experience because I had been hoping that there'd be some way that would that that feeling that I had in Sri Lanka could come back again and, and in a, in all its force that it did when it first uh, happened and um, and you know it gradually faded away and then I was sort of searching in my mind and being open to any possibility that might recreate that that same feeling and the psilocybin came very close to that I felt uh, again that connectedness with the earth and with all its beings and everything around me and very peaceful and, and I, I, I enjoyed the experience a lot and I thought that it did have uh, something that my earlier experience uh, offered me and then I tried um, MDMA. Actually, that was kind of a mistake. I mean, uh, an accident. Uh, I went to a party and a friend slapped some powder on my tongue. And uh, and then she said, go have a good time. And I really didn't know what she... I knew she knew that I was not into drugs, so I didn't know what it was. But I found myself talking to somebody that I had known in the past that I really did not like. And, um, but I kept, um, talking to her because, uh, I didn't have the experience of not liking her at all. And in fact, I had the experience of liking her very much. And this little voice kept saying, what are you doing? You're, she's going to ruin your life. Don't talk to her, you know? And <laughs> I just, I just kept talking to her and really enjoying it. And we had a, just a marvelous time and I was kind of shocked that uh, I had such a very different reaction to her than I normally did. Um, and of course, that was MDMA. And I didn't marry her, which, you know, which is a good thing. But uh, so that's how I, so unlike, I guess, uh, a lot of people who um, had uh, tried psychedelics and then moved on to Buddhism, which was more sustainable uh, for them, and more respectable, I um, I came about it the opposite way. I see. And and when it comes to Buddhism and psychedelics, because as far as I understand, Buddhism does at, at least if you want to become a monk, you're not supposed to really uh, do any sort of uh, mind-altering substance, even alcohol. Well, yes, that's right. That 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 goes back to um, the five precepts, and um, you know the five precepts are do not kill, do not steal, etc. But but the fifth precept is to not um, not become um, intoxicated. Um, I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, um, the idea being that if you lose command of yourself, then you're liable to break the other, uh, break the other precepts, uh, by being heedless. 
And um, so, but that's true not only of monks and nuns, but also of lay followers to follow the five precepts. It's very important. Um, however, um, and Bob Thurman, who is a very academic and as well as practiced um, monk, former monk, and now a, a, a teacher and sort of a pillar of American Buddhism. He, uh, he occupies the chair of Buddhism at Columbia University and uh, founder of the Tibet House. And he, he's been very clear about it, that, um, that the fifth precept really referred to alcohol. And in the Pali, um, in the Pali language, uh, that's what, that's what the fifth precept actually says. It's, uh, it's, it's really alcohol that it's pointing to. But that's not to say that, you know, if it's something besides alcohol, that, that it would be okay to take it if it made you intoxicated and made you uh, without control over yourself. Uh, so anything, including psychedelics or anything else, taken uh, to the point where you're, you're not in control of yourself would be a violation of those precepts. So, however, if you're choosy, my feeling is if you're choosy about what you do and you're careful about the set and setting, uh, with, when you do it, then you, uh, you are not in violation of the precepts by exploring psychedelics. Yes, because of all the drugs you could ever take, I guess psychedelics is the only one where your mind is actually quite normal uh, or clear. It doesn't feel like when you're drunk or if you're stoned or something like that. It's always quite clear, I think. Well, um, there are shades of clear, but but uh, and I think it's very very possible to lose control over yourself uh, and and then and and be in violation of the precepts if by the use of psychedelics. I mean, there are definitely psychedelics that are less conducive to um, or less um, appropriate if you were following a Buddhist path than others, um, but. It's again. It's, it goes back to set and setting. It's like how much are you going to take, and where are you going to take it, and what is your body chemistry at that time, and and many other factors that uh, that, that that end up, you know, producing an effect that's either positive or negative. So, um, yeah. I mean, I don't think you'll have a very successful experience exploring Buddhism if you're using psychedelics a lot. Um, I do think there is a path that you could forge uh, where you use psychedelics intermittently um, to uh, explore that way, just like you use Buddhism to explore yourself. And, um, and both in a, in a respectful way, uh, can produce kind of amazing results. I mean, you know, they amaze me, <laughs> but, uh, and there are others, and I think there's a sort of a growing, a growing agreement that, uh, that they are more compatible than, than a lot of people might think. And, you know, I mean, Buddhism itself is psychedelic because it uh, encourages you to see um, see the world quite differently than um, than the conventional way, and um, it is it is a philosophy that itself goes against the grain. And uh, as Jack Cornfield said, he's a very respected Buddhist teacher and the director of a retreat center called Spirit Rock in California. And Jack is one of the most well known and respected. Uh, American Buddhist teachers, he he gives psychedelics credit for LSD in particular for preparing his mind to be able to um, understand and uh, absorb the teachings of the Buddha. You mentioned Terence McKenna earlier. He often said, "I've heard that he could he was he was amazed that he couldn't see more 
psychedelic art in the ancient religions, but I, I disagree because I think when I look at Buddhist art, Islamic art and Hindu art, I for me, I see a lot of psychedelic imagery that I've experienced myself. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're onto something there. I mean, the, the, um, the imagery uh, from particularly the, um, the esoteric traditions of all religions has, has a, a character similar to that. Um, and, uh, I, to me, that's the only, uh, the only aspect of religion of any organized religion that interests me is it's, uh, more hidden, uh, and, not widely known of um, esoteric section, and that usually predates the conventional religion itself, which sort of grew into those conventions over time. But the um, esoteric tradition is really involved in the fundamentals, you know, um, and uh, and that's given rise to art uh, that does appear to be psychedelic. As I said again, I think Buddhism is psychedelic in terms of uh, changing, or more, not so much changing, but manifesting uh, the mind and consciousness. Because that's what Buddhism is about. You know, uh, Islam has Sufism, which is the best part of Islam, and Judaism has Kabbalah, and Christianity mm-hmm. has the Gnostics. What, what exactly. does the Buddhists or uh, the Buddhism have? Does it have any, like... Well, um, yes, it does. Uh, you know, the thing about Buddhism is it's not one... Uh, one. I mean, it's am- amazingly uniform among its different forms, but it's very, uh, very much... Uh, it's very different uh, in its... from whatever ethnic envelope that it's in. You know, there's the... There's Buddhism, there's Buddhism, Buddhist traditions of, uh, of one country and then they're very different in another country and it's, it varies a lot and, and what keeps them unified is very important, but, uh, but they're quite distinctive. So, um, in the Tibetan tradition, there's a, quite a history, most of it under wraps, but, uh, if you dig, you can find it, that, deals with psychedelic herbs, psychoactive formulations, um, mushrooms, um, other herbs, even flowers that have been used in sacred ceremony. And there's a, there's a book, uh, I mean, I don't go into that really in, in my book, uh, which is called Zig Zag Zen, Buddhism and Psychedelics. Um, as much as I get into the experiences of contemporary uh, <clears throat> individuals experimenting with both, uh, both in terms of when they think they're they're uh, compatible, and 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 also for a few that don't think they're compatible, so it's really a study of that relationship. Um, whereas the newest book on the topic is called "The Secret Drugs of Buddhism." Um, <clears throat> Uh, and um, that gets into that Tibetan tradition that I was speaking of, of using herbs and uh, flowers and various botanicals to produce psychedelic effects in conjunction with practice. What about uh, Zen Buddhism? Is it is a particular branch? Yeah, Zen Buddhism... Uh, uh, well, it, it originally derives from China, <clears throat> but uh, very, very powerful tradition of Zen in Japan, <clears throat> which in more recent times is known, uh, Japan is known as the center of Zen practice. Um, but there's no organized, um, ex- no, no um, tradition within Zen Buddhism that involves taking of uh, sacraments or psychedelics that I know of. That's not to say that psychedelics weren't a part of many Zen practitioners coming to Buddhism and practicing Zen. 
prior to their Buddhist experience, but, but while they're Buddhist, they're, I, know, I don't know of any. As I say that, I'm reminded uh, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, actually he was not Japanese, he was uh, Tibetan, but there, and he was a big drinker. <laughs> but um, there is, in Buddhism, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, there is a esoteric tradition that uses psychedelics. Um, so that's that's been verified and, and researched, and and you can read about that in the in the secret drugs of Buddhism. But um, but I don't think in Zen that you see that. Alan Watts said something about when when a Westerner meets a guru and discovers that sometimes the guru gets annoyed or sometimes the guru smokes a cigarette or something, they get appalled that he, it's supposed to be a perfect person. But then Alan Watts, uh, Alan Watts says, well, he has to do something to be to to be grounded, otherwise, or to manifest, otherwise, he'd just be impossible to even be around you know if he has to do something bad so he like stays here you know right so he fits in with everybody um yeah but you know i i don't think of it as being a perfect person i mean as i mentioned i i was not into um those behaviors growing up at all especially in my explosive teenage years i was you know kind of wild in other areas perhaps but not not in terms of consuming things. Um, so I was no stranger to being different in that respect. And no, but I certainly didn't think I was perfect. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't think that, uh, that most of those teachers think they're perfect either, even if they follow the tradition very carefully and, and don't engage in anything that's uh, questionable. Um, the Buddhists that I've met that are very serious practitioners are, for the most part, have less ego than the people around them, and they're not interested in being perfect. They're just trying to discover their the full meaning of their path. I've always been interested in knowing exactly what the, the Buddha himself uh experienced when he became enlightened i mean was it just a when he means enlightened does it just mean a, st- a state of being or does it mean like you know exactly what does that word mean well you know they say you have to be enlightened to be able to explain it so i can't um but you know my guess is that um to be enlightened is to be free to have to have a free mind and uh, free of uh, of uh, conceptions and and programming and all this stuff that uh, most people most minds are um, afflicted by and uh, reach a state of almost kind of pure consciousness and uh, uh, sort of what you might say is totally in the flow of life. Um, and recognizing the sacredness of, of your experience at all times. Um, and, you know, people get close to those, to those states and they, you know, they recognize the value in that, uh, like the time I did in Sri Lanka. And it was sort of a, 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 a guiding, po- a guidepost for me for the rest of my life. Um, and it remains the same, sort of like uh, I had a taste of it, you know. Um, I think in Buddhism, you, they call that stream entering, when you have an experience of being part of, of, of becoming part of the stream and moving with, uh, with the water and not making your own movements. Um, so, but you brought up something that made me in the first part of your question, what was it again that you said that uh, I wanted to uh, address? No, just un- understand what uh, the Buddha meant when he became enlightened. Ah, okay, okay. So I, you know, I do not, and I don't think anyone can claim that they know uh, 
you know, what the Buddha's life was like to every detail. But we, to the extent that it's ever been recorded or researched, um, there, there's clues that tell us about the Buddha's life. And um, one of them is a very strong clue, which is that he studied with Hindu masters in, um, in Banaras, or Varanasi, and by its different name, and uh, and that they and that they practiced together in the forest of bliss. The forest of bliss was the, was the forest that came right to the edge of the city, and it was a, a discrete area that was um, that that comprised this particular forest called the Ananda Bhavan, and um, the the people that that populated that forest were all. Uh, sadhus, people who were devoting their life to reaching uh, spiritual fulfillment and, and you know, um, practicing a variety of different practices to to uh, achieve some kind of enlightenment. And so they were, and, they, and the people of Benares would bring food to the edges of the forest and put it uh, on the other side of the trees for them and they would be able to eat that way and survive. And uh, it's estimated that the Buddha spent uh, uh, quite a while um, in in the forest with his teachers. And uh, very common practice in the in the forest of bliss was the use of cannabis. And it was not so much as an end an end result to use the cannabis. It was really to prepare yourself for the state of mind that was needed to do your practice. So people were, you know, puffing on pipes and, and uh, in fact, in the Shivite religion, uh, every temple in India, of which there are millions, has cannabis growing in, their, in the backyard and behind the temple. And uh, sadhus or um, pilgrims that were devoted to God-seeking would, would come and rub those plants and get the resins on their hands and then uh, scrape it into their pipes and smoke it. So cannabis, using cannabis was a, was a spiritual activity uh, and only a spiritual activity. Uh, it was not used for... Uh, entertainment or getting high for fun or anything like that by by the common people or anything. It was strictly a uh, tool to be used by the by those seeking spiritual enlightenment. Now it'd be very hard to believe that the Buddha, with his exhaustive search uh, of many different practices, uh, would have not tried it. In fact, it would be I, I personally. And I have nothing but my belief <laughs> to point to, but I I find it exceedingly uh, difficult to believe that he didn't use it uh, fairly uh, fairly commonly uh, while he was in the forest of bliss. Well, according, I mean, I'm sure he, you know, he, he had orgies and he was very drunk many times before he, be, you know, when he was living. W- in that rich, uh, you know, palace before he started his spiritual journeys. I'm sure he's done everything. <laughs> yeah, probably, you know. Although he was quite young when he, when he, uh, when he left the, um, his parents' uh, place. But, uh, but as far as I understand, he said when he died that he would not be reborn. He would, you know... And not come back, but then the, in the right. Tibetan Buddhism, it, they have that the Buddha has come back, uh, and now the Dalai Lama is one of them. You know, how does that go? Well, no, I think that's a misunderstanding. I mean, um, it, it in the in the in the old Buddhist uh, school, the Theravadan school, which is the oldest school of Buddhism that that uh, still flourishes in in. Um, Burma and south part of Vietnam and in Sri Lanka, um, the the goal is to be a non-returner. The goal is to live out your life, and then you're part of the you're part of everything. 
you're you're uh, you, you don't need a body. Um, so yeah, so that's so that that's what I that's what is usually meant by that. What you know? Uh, what is the practice? I mean, do you practice Buddhism twenty four seven, or is it? It's not like Christianity where you go to church on Sunday, you know. Well, there's two ways to answer that. There, in one way, there's some similarity to uh, other religions like Christianity, and that you have a, a, a you know a delineated kind of practice, and you have time for practice, and that's when you do your practice, and you know you either go to church or you go to temple or you uh, more contemporary Buddhists will have uh, a place where they meditate and they cultivate their meditation practice and they you know they, they're pretty devoted to it um, and, and they're getting results from it uh, more ability to you know stay clear of uh, anxiety and depression and anger and, and have more more enjoyment, more relaxation, and more ability to reflect deeply on things. Um, so, but there is a there is a kind of practice that that you constantly do in in your mind um, that is sort of like all day, twenty four hour kind of thing, and it's uh, different for everyone, um, but. There, there are, you know, in, including um, the practice of cultivating compassion. So a Buddhist is practicing Buddhism when they are trying to um, um, avoid the temptation to be angry about something or to someone and instead look more deeply and see that that, um, that person and you and other things are all connected and therefore um, you can have more, you have space to be more sympathetic and kinder and, and things like that. So, so that's a kind of like all constantly, you know, a kind of practice that you, that you're doing 24 hours and in similar ways, um, the teachings of any great religious leader, whether whatever religion it is, um, the hard part is is not going through the formality of a particular appearance in a temple. The hard part is making it part of you, uh, practicing it, practicing those principles all the time in your daily life. Oh, I see. Okay. So, um, uh, so if people want to to check out. Uh, like zigzag Zen or your other work, where can they do that? Well, they can go to Amazon.com and they'll find I have three books on the topic of, uh, of Buddhism. One is uh, called uh, I think my first book is no longer available in hardcover except maybe used copies. It was called Dharmagaya and it was about Buddhism and ecology um, and the ecological crisis. And uh, that was called Dharma Gaya, and that's I think it's available electronically. Um, and then uh, the other book uh, uh, was called Mindfulness in the Marketplace, um, and that was about Buddhism and uh, and business and Buddhism and uh, corporatism um, and different perspectives on. Um, the uh, problem of corporations, corporate behavior in our lives, uh, and and the problems of being a consumer. Um, and then the most recent one was Zigzag Zen, which was released 15 years ago, and then there's a new edition that's just been released last year, uh, the end of last year, um, which has uh, a lot more uh, interviews and and essays from different people who um had a lot more emphasis on uh, uh psychedelics like ayahuasca for instance cool well thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me well it's a pleasure thank you for having me
Go to plantteachers.com if you want to connect with Alan's work. Although it's not over yet, this episode, because I have my colleague Alex on site in Thailand. So, over to you. I'm on an island outside Thailand, and uh, it's very nice. Weather, nature and food. And I've discovered that if you want to eat really nice Thai food, then you should try and head for the restaurants that looks a bit scruffy. The more shabby and cheap looking restaurants. Because unlike in Europe, uh, usually the nicer restaurant, the nicer the food, but here in Thailand it's the opposite. The shittier the restaurant looks, the more authentic Thai food you'll get the spicier and the tastier and the cheapest ironically because uh, I did the mistake of going to a, a very nice looking restaurant but and it was quite pricey and the food was shit and then I went to a very crappy cheap restaurant and the food was excellent so that's what I've been doing since then going to the cheap street food kind of places and the reason I wanted to do a recording here in Thailand was because I went to a Buddhist temple and they had this huge uh, statue and I wanted to tell all you guys and gals about it um, it was a statue of the goddess Guanjin uh, who is the goddess of compassion and mer- mercy and I guess you could say she's the goddess of unconditional love and she is a white statue it was huge uh, I could guess you could say it was like a well maybe a three story building something like that quite big or two story at least 18 arms uh, she had and um, she this statue really uh, freaked me out it's not the right word what could you say it well, it kind of freaked me out because it reminded me of something. And also the temple and the temple area where the statue was, the way the buildings looked, also reminded me of the same thing. And the glass, colored glass, geometrical patterns they had decorated, decorating the place and uh, all the other little statues they had, all those other gods uh, not as large as Guanjin statue but still quite big all these statues and buildings and patterns and art reminded me of the DMT realm and I'm talking about the DMT realm you enter when you smoke DMT because I think that is quite different than ayahuasca Uh, and uh, it surprised me because I know Terence McKenna traveled a great deal in Asia and he, he said and claimed that he never could find any artistic representation of the DMT realm, which he thought was weird. But I, I think he was wrong or I disagree on that bit because I think I see a lot of the DMT realm in these Buddhi- Buddhist temples and Buddhist art. Even in, in in Hindu art to a degree, but especially in this Buddhist art and Chinese Buddhism, which has a particular style. Uh, and I'm not saying that any Buddhist or Buddhist artist have experienced DMT. Uh, so this could all be a great coincidence, but. It could also be that when you master the art of meditation, you can actually perhaps enter the DMT realm naturally. DMT occurs naturally anyway in, in, in our bodies, so, so it, you know, it's highly, highly probable. Uh, and... Uh, It's not exactly like in the DMT realm, of course, 
and you know buildings and statues they're static and in the DMT realm it's all moving about but you know it's the most similar thing I've seen so far and it reminds me of this DMT realm a lot and it's hard to describe verbally so I guess you just have to go to some Buddhist temples and check out for yourself um, and uh, but I think there is great power in, in high meditation and, and there was this monk who meditated was a very skilled at meditation and he also was skilled in the way he ate food I think I don't know the details but he had a very good diet and he he said that when he died he was a monk when he died he wanted he didn't want to be buried he wanted to be just left as is his body to just be left as it is when he died uh, and if the body started to decompose he he said that he wanted his body to be cremated but it did not decompose and so you could watch you could go see it actually and I will do that tomorrow probably or the day after but um, I think that's pretty cool the body I've seen pictures of it and maybe you have too and it ha- the body has like sunglasses because the, the eyes have rotted away but the actual body is quite in good shape for being dead for many years and uh, uh, what's also interesting is that this monk he died while he was meditating so he he entered the other realm in a very clear way I imagine a very gentle way I mean it must be the best way to die is to die gently while meditating So, yeah, that's all I want to say, really, that uh, I experienced what I think was some sort of DMT-like art visiting these Buddhist temples. And funnily enough, uh, walking outside my hotel, you know, uh, just walking around, I happened to come across a tree or a large bush and it was a I mean I can't say for sure because I'm not a botanist but it looked very much like a mimosa hostilis and the bark of mimosa hostilis is if you grind grind it down it's it's an excellent source for uh, DMT so uh, if that's true then at least the plant DMT source is uh, you know accessible at least on this island and my conclusion is that either they smoke DMT constructed these statues and this art over the decades or they uh, this just the similarity of deep meditation and inspiration with the divine Or just coincidence. Who knows? Who the fuck knows? And yeah, so that's all I wanted to report here from Thailand. So I guess uh, I'm going to uh, hand the mic over to myself sometime in the future. Back in the studio. Back in Europe. Over to you, Alex. Thanks, Alex. The other day I got an email from a listener who said that this podcast is one of the few that has exposed him to some new ideas. And uh, that's very nice words that I appreciate. But uh, I got the idea that, uh, you know, if you feel there is a question or an idea that you would like me to comment on, and then go to naturalbornalchemist.com and click the contact button and drop me a line. It doesn't mean that I have the answer to your question, but maybe I can bring it forward and mud it over a bit in the podcast. 
Now we're going to listen to a song called Buddha's Chant by Daniel Granado from the album Songs from a Rented Room. Check out more of Daniel's music at danielgranado.bandcamp.com. Next week we will be joined by Dr. Leary. Freedom is in the mind.